0: Well, if you've been following with us, we've been in the book of First Timothy. If you haven't been here, uh, you can turn there in God's Word. We're, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Uh, what we've seen in this letter is it's a letter to the church of Ephesus, and it carries the same weight for us that it did 2,000 years ago. As we're reading through it, it applies so quickly and purposely to where we're at today, whether in families or culture, the way that we deal with our relationships among us. And so that's why we typically walk through books of the Bible because the Lord continues to unpack his character for us as we walk through scripture to scripture. It is his word to us, his instruction to us. In last week's verses, I want to bring those back up from chapter 3. Paul says this, and he gives us the summary of why he's written this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of truth of the truth great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness And so the point here in this text or why we do this every Sunday is to remind us of who we are He goes to that point to say you are the church the household of God the church of the living God and he's established you as a pillar of truth and so we get that clear analogy of that structure that he put in place last week of lifting high. That is our intention, our purpose as believers, to lift high the name of Jesus. And so from here, he has this encouragement to the church, this reminder, and he turns and he pivots back towards the false teachers that he was speaking of in, verses, or in chapters 1 and 2. And so in chapters 4, and we'll spend several weeks here in chapter 4, uh, addressing these, these false teachers again, but he writes here in this text today, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, of what his intention was for us and how when we're outside of that, it works against the very fabric of what the Lord intended us to be or how to live. And so it, it shows Paul's heart for his for these disciples. You want me to switch out this mic? Are we good? Okay. All right, and so he's, he's taking time here in 1 Timothy to show how when we undermine this plan and this provision that God has set out for us, and that's why he takes us back to the creation story, we fall out of this great provision and this rest that God always intended for all of creation. Not just people, but for all of his creation that he's established. And when we do that, it has damning effects for all of us, and we see that in that creation story. And I read this quote this week. Uh, It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian and he was known for how he spoke out against the Nazi regime and that ultimately led to his death that he was associated with this party that had a conspiracy to overthrow the Nazi party and before his death and in his passion for God restoring humanity and speaking out against evil he says this, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. He continues by saying, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that that it be fulfilled by God by others and by themselves. And so they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build, Christ builds the church. And he finishes out by saying, whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it. For he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. And so that is a very clear picture of what Paul is trying to say. It's the same heart that Paul is trying to show to the, his people and exposing these errors of the false teachers. He's very intentional and pointed in how he speaks out against this. that when we do that, when we get outside of the Lord's will, we actually put ourselves into the captain's seat, which was a place that we were never meant to be, never meant to carry that weight. And then Isaiah 45, 5, I'll put that up on the screen. It's just very clear to the point. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Or as the phrase goes, there is a God, and you are not him. And and that's what Paul is trying to say through this text today, this encouragement to the church. He's, He's looking to dethrone everything else. If there's anything else above the Lord, if we put anything else out there to worship, He's trying to take that out of that seat. That is not where it's meant to be, for that is the Lord's throne. And so he calls out these false prophets to repentance. That's what we saw through the first two chapters. And he exposes their greed and their desire for self-promotion. And then we get to our text today, and so we're going to read that. If If you have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so he starts off into chapter 4, kind of how he started the letter. He's refocusing back to the reason he started here. He's addressing unrepentant sin that has manifested itself in the church and showing how this causes havoc for everyone, not just those involved, but it stains what is happening, or it distorts what God intended for creation. And in this first verse, if you read that in verse 1, he's saying the Spirit of God is still at work here. He's saying, pay attention. He's not just kind of active a little bit, but he's expressive in what he's saying, that he's been very clear with us on what he is showing to us and speaking to us, and God is warning them about these false teachers it's, it's not it's not a new thing that we see if, if we read the other new testament books we see how he expresses that to these other churches not just ephesus uh, jesus did this as well he was expressing himself through the spirit as jesus spoke parables to the disciples and we get that picture in the parable of the sower when he talks about the seeds and how those are going to manifest in a different way he says it in mark 13:22. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so we get many promptings of the Holy Spirit through Paul, through the New Testament writers, through Jesus. Because God is leading His church into restoration, into further communion with Him. And so He's giving them warning of what they're going to face as sin displays itself. But He's reminding them to pay attention to the Spirit because He's leading you through this process. And then He continues on in our text today. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. Whose consciences are seared. And so Paul brings into the forefront of our mind uh, not not just what the spirit is doing, but he also addresses the opposition that's taking place here. What's happening on the other side of the spiritual realm as evil rears its ugly head through the power of what he says here demonic spirits or deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so he doesn't just sweep that under the rug. I would say probably that's not where we spend a majority of our time is sitting in our living rooms and talking through demonic teachings and saying, hey, how are we going to address this? But what Paul is doing here is he is addressing it because it's coming through anything that isn't from the Lord. So anything that is in the hands of Satan is demonic. Anything that we give power to outside of the Lord is a serious problem. So he takes it head on to not just expose the sin and talk about demonic happenings, but to expose the character of God, to give us as the church a richer, fuller display of who this God is and what he's doing for us. And so he exposes the enemy and how they will prey on individuals. And he says, The elect, that's us, they'll go after the people in the church. And so that's where the source of this is happening. That through false teachers, that who have willingly seared their consciences, we saw that in chapter one, that it was intentional turning away from the Lord, not listening to the Spirit. That word seared. And we probably got a good picture of what that means and images probably pop into your head of what that means. Uh, For me, it was that idea of like being cauterized. Uh, and I looked up the definition. It's, it's, it's a medical term. We all know that. Uh, some of you have gone through that process in different ways. Uh, we've experienced that with Kelsey's dad with heart issues and having to take care of things, but it's intentionally burning something in the body so not to allow further function. And so when he says seared, that's what we're talking about, that they have intentionally burned parts of themselves, specifically their consciences, their their God-given ability to feel or know rightness from wrongness that's been seared or cut off from function because of their disobedience. So much so that they are no longer able to even fulfill their, their role, their God-given functions that the Lord has given to them. They've intentionally gone against the Lord. And how does that play out? They, they can't even take care of people how God intended them to take care of people. They, they can't lead people to truth or even enjoy the beauty of the Lord because they've turned away from it. And so the enemy begins to lure others away from the truth through the influence of these seared and deceptive men who have turned against the Lord. Ephesians 4.19 is another place that it talks about these men or these people that have turned against the Lord. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so what Paul is saying, under this power of these demons or demonic teachings, these calloused and cauterized, seared individuals become great tools in the hand of the enemy. It's actually quite the opposite of what the Lord intended. Instead of being used for tools of righteousness, which is what we're called, to be pillars or buttresses of the truth, is what he said last week, instead of being in line with God's will and celebrating all that God has intended from the beginning for us, and what happens here, in the fellowship with Him, and the protection with Him, and the provision that He provides for you, for me, for us—they've—they've they've traded all of that for a lie. That this—and—and and there's this great ripping and and this great tearing of the fabric of how God has made us and why he has made us. And so Paul's trying to maybe sear that into our own brains to say, take this in. See the visual of what's happening. And so that's what's happening in verses 1 and 2. He's, he's addressing that error of how they have fallen away or where that started. After not listening to the prompting of the Spirit repeatedly, even after they've been called into repentance, these individuals end up giving themselves over to something that's not God. And it's, it's that Bonhoeffer quote. It's, it's They begin to see their wishful or prideful thinking as bigger or above or better than what God intended. And so they become puffed up and arrogant. And they traded love and protection of their God for something else. And then if we move on to verses 3 through 5, he, he gives us this litmus test. And he'll do kind of this creation, using creation to show how this plays out for these false teachers, exposing that error even fuller. And then 6 through 10, we'll get to that next week. Kind of this, uh, another avenue of how that plays out. But he identifies the error, and he states that these false teachers will attack on two fronts. And if you're looking at your Bible, those two fronts are marriage and food. They, they will begin their, to call into question and do an all-out, an all-out assault on what the Lord did through creation. The avenue of relationship and sustenance, two things that all life hinges on. And he says that they forbid marriage, chapter 4 of Timothy, they forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So marriage and food. Kind of seems odd, but if we break this down, it's two very interesting subjects that if we just left unattended and unaddressed, it will affect everyone. And so what Paul does, much like he has already done in this book already, he takes us back to the creation story. He did it in chapter 2 when addressing the roles of the church. And he, he shows us that story of Adam and Eve and how their sin royally disrupted what God intended from the beginning for all of creation. His intention always to, was to commune with God. But that's not how our world views that when we become selfish. When we move away from the things of God, we don't see God as this beautiful creator. But what the garden story is, this Genesis story, it's a beautiful picture, really is the main story of God walking in the garden with his creation and giving man authority or stewardship over all that he has made and allowing them to enjoy it and to marvel in it and God to rest with his people and his people to rest with God. They were meant to be together and we were meant to enjoy this. But Paul is setting up this argument in First Timothy and so he starts off by exposing kind of the lunacy of where these false teachers go to. and He's making the connection to Adam and Eve because they deviated from what God asked of them And so he's making that connection to these false teachers, that they're doing the same thing. So they're trading the provision and promises of the Lord for a lie. And they're now not only ignoring the Lord, but they're intentionally choosing to challenge him by attacking his very plan for creation. And so again, he says they're going to attack first or in the place of marriage and food. That's what he's seeing play out in this church. God created man and woman to be together, and this is how he defines marriage, not by a system of religion or how culture has shaped it over time, but God gave us the manuscript of how marriage should be defined. And in the bounds of this holy union, it's from the hand of the Lord, we get the picture of families. We get this beautiful picture of how his glory is displayed It's a man and a woman, and they get to procreate in the bounds of marriage to reproduce the image of God and fill the earth and subdue it. This was the Genesis story. This was the intention, and enjoying everything that he has for us. And so any other definition is what Paul is saying. If we get away from this, it's not marriage. If you define sex in any other way that the Lord has not, it's not godly. It's not holy. And so he exposes that in the false teachers, that their teaching against marriage is ungodly, and they do it from a prompting and tools of the enemy. It's not coming from truth. It's not coming from the first intention of how God created this. It's coming from something they made up or felt good about, something that they decided to do on their own. And their consciences are so seared from hearing truth that instead of receiving from their creator, they have turned to a source that doesn't define marriage and can't sustain marriage. So that's why Paul says it's demonic, because it's anti-God. It's going and placing your trust into the hands of the enemy, those who are against God. So he takes us from that creation story and says, ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve went against God's plans for them in the garden, God has been leading us back to this place of restoration, back to where creation can commune and rest in his presence. We're not there yet, but he's, he's proving a way, and we saw that a little bit in his proclamation of Jesus and how Jesus came in last week's chapter of, of chapter 3. He writes that poetic reminder, if you remember those six lines, and he shows how God has been actively restoring his creation. In that poem, he, he praises the work of God, specifically through Jesus, that the angels long to look on this thing and figure out how God was going to restore his creation. He's he's making a way for us. We've messed this up, right? We feel that shame. There is distance between us and God, but he's bringing us back in close, and he's sustaining or restoring that relationship with our Father and our Creator. And then this round, he's not just bringing us into proximity. I see that closeness of them walking with God in the garden. But he said last week that we are the temple of God, right? We, we brought up those texts of how God is living in us. He's dwelling with his people again. He made a way through Jesus. And so there's deep, deep, and meaningful reason why Paul goes head on after these false teachers. This is probably not why you showed up on Sunday. Uh, this isn't like one of those encouraging texts that we walk away like, man, we talked about false teachers, right? But the reason that he is so passionate, and maybe why we get so passionate here about walking through scripture like this, is because it applies to you and me. That if if Ephesus leaves this unchecked, it has serious consequences for everything going on. It has serious consequences if we let sin into our lives or don't submit ourselves to the Lord in certain ways, that it it rips at that very fabric of who the Lord designed us to be. And Paul's tone in this book over and over is kind of a a Job tone of how God approaches Job. How can anyone forbid or despise marriage when God is the one who instituted it for us? Is man going to challenge the creator of this institution of marriage and try to improve upon it? Do we have that power? How can anyone tell me or you not to eat certain foods when God has specifically said that I have made this and it is good and it is for your enjoyment? When taken with thanksgiving? And so for this society, meat was a big deal. That's why Paul's talking about food. There's things going on that religion or other sects in there, sects, uh, what they're trying to do, people that are causing to pull people away from what God intended. He addresses food because that was separating or caused division in the church. But Paul's asking, how are you going to tell me that what God has expressively told me is not good. You're, you're doing a disservice. You're taking away from his intention. Paul is challenging religion over relationship. Worldly over obedience. Worldly issues over obedience. And so, even through singleness or abstaining from food, those are acknowledged in Scripture as well. But those are not the norm. He says it gives us perimeters in his word around those things. But this is rare occasions of we might have longer fasts or we're called to celibacy, but it is still in that, it is for the glory of the Lord, defined and prompted by God. And so the reason the apostles are so adamant to defend and put parameters or say, this is what God has told us, what does God say about this in the institution of marriage or the way that we partake food it, and the simple act of enjoying what he made for us, if, if we don't submit that to the Lord, it impedes on What he has for us. And so that's why the creation story is where Paul continues to bring us back over and over. And so, as mom and dad, uh, if you want to teach and have something that you could teach on every night or several times a week, just walk through the creation story for the next 18 years of their lives. It is a beautiful reminder of what God is doing and what the purpose of creation was for and how our families are to look. It's a very clear blueprint of who God is and what he made us for. Outside of that design, what do we find? Paul starts off this letter by, they. we find shipwreck. We find a way to wreck our lives. We become callous, demonic teachers. We are deceived by spirits that lead us away into our own demise. And so, it doesn't mean that since the fall, if we stay in God's will, everything is perfect. We know that. I've walked with you. We've Duke this out, right? I've not been perfect. I will fail you. You will fail me at some point. We will struggle through this life. Sin has its tentacles into all the places of our lives. But what Paul is calling this young church into is to help restore and bring God's creation back in line with its original design and intent. And so Paul is passionately saying defend this, it's important. And with that, I think the church steps a little bit too far. Oh, I'll defend it, right? That's not what he's calling us to. He's not giving us permission to go out and beat people over the heads with the Bible, right? Jesus came to model what this is to look like. In some, some scenarios that I see this work walk out with Jesus specifically is he goes to Zacchaeus and he doesn't reprimand him from stealing, for stealing people's money from them and, and taking their tax money, right? No, he says, hey, I wanna go and eat with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to develop a relationship with you so that I can show you the better way. He didn't go to the woman at the well and start conversation by saying, your view on marriage is terrible. I and mean, if you don't fix it, I will crush you, Right? That, that's not his approach. He actually goes past kind of the social norms of that day and actually engages her where other people hadn't, and he begins to speak truth to her and grace and freedom from her damaged life. Uh, a few other scenarios. It's the story of the, the prostitute washing Jesus' feet, right? He doesn't look at her and say, quit touching me, you're making me dirty right? No, he he let her in. And as she's washing his feet and anointing him with oil, in turn, he was allowing her to be washed in the grace and the healing mercy of God. And she repents, and she aligns herself into relationship and communion with the Lord. Jesus, that's what he does for us. He actually comes to us, like God in the garden, and He walks with us, His own creation. And so, the call of the church is our, our call is not to react in anger and hostility whenever a sinner is sinful. No one wants to go to that church. We don't, no one's ever going to say, Oh, yeah, I go to that angry church down the road. I, I go to the one that is arrogant. I go to, the, yeah, that one that came at me and told me all my problems and filled me with shame. That's the place that I go. That's not even something anyone would ever say. It's not a place of refuge and hope. So God is calling us into restoration. And so when we don't listen to how he puts parameters around these things, we go one way or the other. We go away from God, we take what God has said, and we expound upon it, and we look angry and crazy. But Paul said last week that we are pillars of truth. Do, do you see yourself as that? If you are a believer in the Lord, you are grounded as a pillar of truth in the church of the living God. And so when people look at us and they're invited into this community, they should be able to see people that are freed up from anger, that are freed up and have the power to overcome religious duty or asceticism or pride and it should look like a place of hope and refuge that even when he addresses Paul, when Paul addresses in back in the first chapter maybe second chapter Hymenaeus and Alexander he calls them out and a lot of us cringe at that if we have to do church discipline that gets uncomfortable but he says even in that in calling them out on their sin It was a chance for them to learn and repent. And so even when we bring people the word of God and say, hey, we're out of this, we're we're not in line with the Lord, even in that rebuke and and pointedness, it's covered in deep desire for truth and restoration and grace. And then that leads us to verses 4 and 5, if your Bible's still open. 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of god and prayer and so it's it's this opportunity that paul is paul is inviting us in where the church can actively walk alongside the hand of the lord in this renewal and restoration process that everything that god has made is good And when it is received as God has intended, we bring it back into its holy state, enjoying it in the way it was meant to be used and enjoyed in the first place. And specifically, he says, receive, when we receive it, how the Lord intended with thanksgiving, to enjoy it. That's a a huge takeaway for today, to read this scripture, that we don't even have to often change our environment that we find ourselves in. We don't have to divorce our spouses to find rest, right? We don't have to discount our ethnicity or our gender or our job or the creative way that he has wired us. All we need to do often is just repent of our discontentment and ungratefulness. And Paul says, and praise the Lord for what he has given to us. In other scenarios, it might take some repenting. It might take It might cause us to have to change up our life and bring it back under the banner and submission of the Lord. But as we do this, as painful as it is sometimes, we actually make these areas of our lives and the gifts associated with them holy, is what Paul is saying. They're sacred, set apart for the work of the Lord. And so by thanking the Lord for his church, you're making it holy, by enjoying the grace and singleness or the joy in marriage, by praising God for health, by thanking him that he made us male or female, by simply acknowledging his marvelous design and work, we actually are bringing creation back into its original purpose. And so we're setting it apart. And then he ends in verse 5, if you'll look there. He tells us how that is so. He says, we do this by the word of God and prayer. And that's kind of odd. Saw that even in a lot of the teachings, uh, just reading through commentaries. uh. But how does God's word and prayer fit into this discussion? That should be a question for us. I think it, it takes us back to the garden with man and woman walking with God in complete harmony and unity. That God's word... Meaning his provision for us, communion with him, him talking to us, and prayer, meaning us talking with him and communing with him, is what it is. The false teachers got it wrong when they stopped communing and listening to the Lord, specifically in God's design of communion and provision, marriage and food. But this is also exactly where Adam and Eve failed as well. That's why Paul takes us back there. In their lack of communing, communing and listening to the Lord, they began to question God's provision for them. So Paul isn't addressing just a simple attack on marriages and food. The reason that I'm preaching this this morning, even if we don't walk away happy about this awesome, encouraging text, right? The reason that it's important to you and I today is because it's not just a simple attack. It is addressing God's plan for us. It's an attack on God's character his intentions, it's a clear threat that going on, that is going on in our country. That's something that we're facing and have to stand up on answers every day of how this is defined. And so it gets uncomfortable. But it's, again, going back to what Bonhoeffer said, it is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols. And so what we're saying, what Paul is saying, what Scripture is leading us to as a church is to say that man does not have the authority to define things that the Lord has designed. And when man does this, it only leads to tragedy. What God is doing since the fall is using His people, set apart for His glory and purposes to bring creation back in line with His will and to make things holy again, set apart for God to use as He intended And he's still in this process of restoration. That's the good news this morning. That as we sit in our sin, or we have struggle around us, or we don't see the outcome of how this is going to play out, he says, look to Christ. It's the song we just sang. I don't think we've even begun to see how his provision is going to play out here. That there's more to come, and we've got eternity ahead to watch it unfold. And so that's where I'll land this plane this morning, is... Read this scripture and dive in further to what God's saying. Take inventory today on your Sunday, most of us a day off, and just thank the Lord for what he's given us, to praise him for these things. And when you enjoy a good meal, when you sit down at lunch today, and you laugh with a friend or you struggle through marriage while acknowledging the Lord's grace in that, you struggle... With kids or get to watch them play in the backyard. When you celebrate an anniversary or a birthday, when you get a good diagnosis, when you go to the doctor and your limbs are all still working, just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for these little things. And so when you allow that neighbor just to share with you and you praise the Lord for that time, that we actually make these little moments holy. We, we bring them back in line with God's original intent. And that's the remedy that Paul says we have against the attacks of the enemy. That walking in communion with our God, we rest eternally in a saving provision as brothers and sisters in the household of God. We're pillars of truth.